I'm delighted to be your preacher during these days. I have fulfilled a lifelong ambition right here tonight in your church. I'd always wanted to be a part of a youth drama team. <laughs> and uh, you allowed me to be up here with you. And I don't know if I got all the moves right, <laughs> but uh, I felt like I was a part. Thank you. I shall preach tonight from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 21. The title of my sermon is Rizpah Upon the Rock or A Strange Providence. Have any of you ever noticed that sometimes Providence will knock you down. And while you are down, it will kick you in the ribs. Sometimes the providences of God are bitter. They are hard. And yet they are the providences of God nonetheless. I want you to see the strange providence in the life of this lady named Rizpah. Rizpah upon the rock. Have you found the passage? Let's begin at verse 1. Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul, and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Then the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they answered the king, The man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coast of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered into our hands that we might hang them up before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, 
because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bashan, where the Philistines had hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. And they brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and of Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the sepulchre of Kish, his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. There. What do you think about this story from the word of God? Are you interested? I have three items in my sermon. First, I want to give you the historical circumstances. Secondly, I want to talk about the honorable character of Rizpah. And thirdly, I want to give you some hallowed conclusions that can easily be drawn from the text. Do you remember this story? It is first told in the book of Joshua, chapter 9, the Israelites were commanded, when you enter into the land of Canaan, don't leave any of the inhabitants remaining. There'll be a reproach to you. There'll be thorns in your flesh. They'll turn your hearts away from the Lord your God. Don't leave any of them remaining. They have conquered Jericho. They have captured Ai, 
and the fear and the dread of them has fallen upon the inhabitants of the land. The Gibeonites dwelt there in Canaan. They devised an ingenious plan. They selected a small group of emissaries and dressed them in old clothes. They gave them old shoes, old wineskins, and dried molded bread. And these emissaries came to Joshua and the Israelite army, and they said, We are from a far country, but we've heard about you and about your God, and we've come to make a league with you. And Joshua said, But how shall we know but what you dwell in the land? And they said, Oh my, look at us. Our clothes were new when we left home. This bread was freshly baked. We're from a far country. Make a league with us. And Joshua did not inquire of the Lord. And he made a covenant promising that he would not destroy the Gibeonites. Uh, shortly thereafter, he discovered he had been deceived. And some of the men in his army rose up and would have slain the Gibeonites then and there. But Joshua said, no. No, we have sworn before the Lord, and we cannot go back. So they made the Gibeonites to be servants. They would chop the wood and draw the water for the Israelites. And this arrangement persisted for over 400 years. But when Saul, the first king in Israel, came to the throne, he began to kill many of the Gibeonites. Now the Bible scholars quibble regarding his motive. Some say he's a despot. He enjoyed the carnage. Others say he's trying to make up for his earlier debacle when God sent him to slay the Amalekites but he kept Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive as a trophy of his victory. Uh, some say he's reverting to the original command to leave none of the inhabitants remaining. Regardless of his motive, this much we know, he breached the covenant. He broke the promise and 30 years after the death of Saul, when David is king in Israel, God sends a famine. It persists for three years. And when David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said plainly, this famine is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. In our passage, David has gathered the leaders of the Gibeonites. He is seeking to placate and appease them. He says, what can we do? We need your blessing on God's inheritance. And they answered the king by saying, we don't want you to do anything. We don't want any remuneration. We don't want you to put anyone to death. What we prefer 
is that you deliver into our hands seven of the sons of Saul and we will hang them in Gibeah of Saul. And the king has agreed. He's taken these two sons of Rizpah and the five sons of Michael. It's along about the middle of April at the beginning of the barley harvest. And the Gibeonites hang these boys up. Their bodies remain suspended there between heaven and earth until October when the fall rains come. These are the historical circumstances. Now put that aside. And I want to talk to you about the honorable character of Rizpah. Do you remember this lady, Rizpah? She had been married to the king as a concubine. She had been among the royalty. She had enjoyed all of the privileges and advantages of the land. But her character is best viewed against the backdrop of her great disappointment in life. You see, her husband has died. Do you remember how Saul died? The Philistines wounded him in a battle, but he did not die. And he was so fearful that they would torture him, he impaled himself upon his own soul. And still, he did not die. And when a young man passed by, Saul said, come near, draw your sword and thrust me through lest these uncircumcised Philistines abuse me. When they discovered his body and the body of his son Jonathan, they hanged them up in the street of Bashan. The brave men of Jabesh Gilead had owed Saul a, a debt of gratitude for over 70 years. They came and stole the bodies and buried them 20 miles west of the Jordan River. Rizpah has not attended a funeral. She has not had closure to the death of her husband. How can you describe the grief of heart that a person experiences when they lose their life's mate? But that's not all. This lady, Rizpah, has been sexually abused. The captain of the host for the Israelite army has been publicly reprimanded for sexually abusing these concubines of Saul. Are you folks alarmed at the onslaught of sexual abuse in our own land? Are you concerned about the onslaught of child sexual abuse. I've got some down home thinking about that. I believe that when a man has been adjudicated and found to be guilty of sexually violating a small child and the godless judge gives him only a 60-day jail term with mandatory treatment. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe the judge ought to be hanged. Yes, that brings the wrath of God. 
upon the nation. But that's not all. Rizpah has been deposed from the palace. She is now dependent on her two sons, Armoni and Mephibosheth, for her daily sustenance. Perhaps she has entertained the notion that one day David, the man after God's own heart, would promote her to some position of dignity and the horsemen ride up and dismount. But instead, they take hold of her two boys and commence to drag them away. And when she says, what's this about? They say, stand back, lest you lose your own life also. She follows them at a distance until they come to the hill at Gibeah. And she watches in unbelief. She watches in utter astonishment. She's taken aback. She cannot believe what's happening as they hang her two sons and their five cousins. She watches and she waits until at last the soldiers move away. It's then and it's there that she commences this vigil. She spreads sackcloth upon the rock. And in the daylight hours when the vultures soaring above would swoop down to devour the flesh of these boys, she rises up and drives them away. And in the darkness of the midnight, though she is exhausted from lack of sleep, when the jackals of the wilderness would come to tear the flesh of these boys with courage and with discipline that she had never experienced before, she rises up and faces them and she drives them away. And she does it day after day and night after night. She watches their flesh emaciate. She watches their flesh drop from their bones and their bones bleach white in the noonday sun. Neighbors come, take her by the arm. They turn her around. They say, come on home with us now. There's nothing else to do here. You cannot restore their lives. They're gone. Don't be delusional. But she will not relent. And she is not delusional. She does not suppose that she can restore their lives. No, there is in the heart of this mother a glimmer of hope. There is in the eye of this mother a a ray of light. She believes that even yet she might be able to give her sons a decent burial, a noble interment. And as long as there's this hope, she will not relent. She keeps the vigil. I suggest to you this is noble character. I say God bless Rizpah, don't you? Wouldn't it be something if during these days, 
God were to raise up a new generation of risk followers, mothers and fathers and grandparents who are absolutely convinced that while their children are yet alive, they as parents have no greater responsibility than to bring those children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something that if God were to raise up a new generation of parents who are convinced that personal purity and holiness and righteousness of life are more important in their children than accolades and athletics and academics. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something if God were to raise up a new generation of parents who are keenly aware that it's more important for their children to be acquainted with the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament than for them to be familiar with every video that Hollywood can produce. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something if God put us all under a fresh indictment keenly aware that there are vultures soaring up above and enemies lurking in the dark and secret places waiting for just the right moment to tear and devour children. But put that aside now and I want to talk to you about some hallowed conclusions that can easily be drawn from the text. Now, perhaps I should warn you because there are several of these. Are you able? All right, here's the first one. Sometimes God sends natural calamity as punishment for sin. Did you see it in the text? When David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, this famine is for Saul. Now don't come up to me after the service and ask me about Hurricane Katrina. I don't know. It's the business of the preacher to preach what the Bible says. And the Bible didn't mention Katrina. What the Bible says is that God sent this family because of Saul. Is it a fair conclusion to draw God sometimes sends natural calamity as punishment for sin. Number two, when God sends judgment, his children ought to inquire why. David inquired of the Lord. I would suggest that David himself would have been better served if he had not waited three years at the first hint of God's displeasure, the saints ought to fall on their knees and inquire why. Number three, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind nonetheless, and they grind exceedingly fine. I can't answer your question. Why did God wait 30 years after the death of Saul? before he sent the famine? I don't know the answer to that. 
I do know this, that the judge of all the earth will do right. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. I would ask you this, why should you and I be willing to enjoy the privileges and advantages and blessings that have accrued unto us from previous generations and not be willing to suffer some of the consequences of their mistakes. It's a two-edged sword, isn't it? Number four. Sometimes children suffer because of the sins of the parents. In the Decalogue of Exodus chapter 20, we have these words. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Here, are two first-generation descendants and five second-generation descendants of Saul. Now let me tell you something about these boys. They would have died. They were guilty because of Adam's transgression. They possessed original sin and they were naturally depraved, and they would have died. The wages of sin is death. But the reason they died this untimely, unseemly death is the direct result of Saul, the father, and the grandfather's sin. Do you see it? Nod your head up and down like this if you round like this if you're confused. All right, here's the fifth item. Providence is personal, and yet providence is bigger than any one person. Providence was personal to Rizpah. She wrestled with those tough questions. Why has God allowed this to happen? Have I not suffered enough already? How much can one person endure? Lord, where are you when I need you the most? If you've never had to wrestle with those questions, you're a rare and fortunate individual. The truth of the matter is, difficulties, trials, and troubles do not respect persons. It affected her at the deepest level of her being. And yet, it wasn't just about her. It was about God. It was about providence, uh, working out an eternal plan. It was about holy justice. She was only making a cameo appearance in a much larger drama. Number six, sometimes parents suffer unspeakable sorrow because of trouble with their children when the parents are not to blame. You'll search the Bible in vain looking for any indication 
that Rizpah was ever delinquent, that she ever sloughed off or was negligent as a parent. It was not her fault. It was the fault of the father, the grandfather. And yet, though this parent is innocent in the matter, she experiences tremendous sorrow and difficulty. And if that was not enough, it still happens today. A child is born to a godly family. They have every advantage. Their parents daily seek to instruct them in the way of the Lord. They pray with them and for them. They bring them to the house of God for further instruction. And yet those children get to being older teenagers or young adults. And for reasons known only to God, they make a left turn and they go out into the world following the flesh and the devil. Does it happen? And if that were not enough, the accuser of the brethren comes and he says it's your fault. No wonder your daughter's in trouble. You, you should never have allowed her to go. You knew she would be vulnerable. No wonder your son's in trouble. You were too harsh. It was your way or the highway. Are y'all listening? And he beats you up. And if you're not mature, if you're not disciplined, he will disarm you and disable you and destroy you. You have to go back and retrace your steps. You received your children as a gift from God. No, you were never perfect as a parent not even on your best day. You've got that figured out, haven't you? That on your best day, you were not perfect. And have you, have you realized there's enough blame to go around? But you have to go back and retrace your steps. The furthest thing from your heart was that your daughter might grow up and be promiscuous. The furthest thing from your heart is that your son might grow up and become uh, addicted to drugs. No. And it may very well be that in this room tonight there are parents or grandparents who this very week have wept themselves to sleep, worried because of trouble with their children or grandchildren. And I'm telling you the hardest thing uh, a parent is ever called upon to do is to turn their children over to the Lord and learn how to pray, how to lay hold of the altar of God and not turn loose and trust God to do what parents by themselves can never do. Number seven, character is not made in a crisis. It's manifested. Rizpah had character when the crisis came. Otherwise, she wouldn't have had character to manifest. And I tell you tonight, if you keep on living long enough, 
you are apt to face a crisis in your own life. If you want to be able to manifest godly character in a crisis, you have to be busy building that kind of character into your life today. Number eight. Sometimes a child of God has their greatest influence in the midst of their deepest disappointments. I call your attention to verse 11. It was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and buried them in the sepulcher of Kish, his father. Would you have ever dreamed that this concubine would have motivated the king of Israel to do something he had been negligent in for 30 years? During the first few weeks of David's administration, he should have sent an envoy to Jabesh Gilead to retrieve the bones of Saul and given him a state burial. You bury the king, even if he's a Democrat. <laughs> you bury the king, even if he's a Republican. I'm an equal opportunity preacher. <laughs> if, he's, if he's the king, he's God's appointed ruler. Now granted, you need to bury some of them deeper than others. <laughs> For 30 years, David has been negligent. Are you aware if revival were to come tonight, some of God's children might have to go back 30 years and undo some of the mistakes they've made? Do you know what Baptists are famous for today? It's no longer pie and ice cream socials. We're famous for getting enough people together that we can choose up sides and have a big fight. Here's how it happens. A little group gets their feelings hurt over some piddling matter. Little white-haired ladies that can cook the best fried apple pie you ever tasted will become meaner than a junkyard dog. They'll give the preacher a cussing right out here on the parking lot. Little group of them will pull out. They'll go down the road uh, a mile or two and crank up a new church. Likely as not, they'll name it Emmanuel. God is with us. Or worse, they'll name it fellowship. Or even worse, unity. And there's a cloud over the community. You ever seen it? And the rhetoric is at a fever pitch. But after a while, uh, Emmanuel applies to the local association for membership. And five years passes and the cloud dissipates and 
We can attend an annual meeting and be civil toward each other. Some of the old moss backs back here at the church, they've been sitting on enough cash they could burn a wet mule on a rainy day with all the cash they've got. They got Walmart stock they bought back in the 80s. They don't even know how much it's worth. They hadn't given $1,000 to God's church in 10 years. That's less than $10 a month. When out that Emmanuel crowd pulled out, they'll get off of some of that cash and start giving big bucks to the church. That's not because they love Jesus. It's because they don't want to run the risk of bumping into some of that Emmanuel crowd over at Walmart without having the privilege of saying, well, let me tell you something. Since you all left, our budget hadn't gone down, not one dime. Why don't you put that in your pipe and smoke it? <laughs> Does it happen that way? If you've been around Baptist life very long, you know that's the way it happens. And 10 years goes by, and 20, and 30 years goes by, and God sends a family. It's not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing of the gospel. And when we finally get around to inquiring why, God says it's because of the rancor and the resentment 30 years ago. And beloved, think about it now. Even if it's not true in this negative sense. It is true going forward. What you and I do today could very well impact the kingdom for 30 years. Now do this. This is audience participation time. Are you ready? Number nine. I warned you, didn't I, that there are several of these. And this is the last one. I want you to look at verse 14, the last half. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I also believe that a sovereign God can be and often is entreated by the actions and the attitudes of his people. And so I ask you tonight, have you performed what the king commanded? The Lord now commands all men everywhere to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you up to date in your compliance with the will of God? I want us to bow and pray. Our Father, would you be pleased to write these things indelibly upon our hearts and before our eyes? 
I pray, Father, that if there's even one of your children who's gone astray, that tonight they'd turn back, that they'd turn to the Lord and to the church and to home. I pray, Father, if there's one without the Savior, that with bands and cords of love, you draw them to yourself. For Jesus' sake, amen. Would you stand now and join us in singing? And as we sing, our pastor, who knows you and loves you, will be here at the altar. When he sees you stir, he'll meet you to counsel you and to pray with you and to help you. Will you come as we sing?